Hey everyone! Welcome to the podcast for the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, we encourage you to check out our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org. You can also subscribe on iTunes or wherever you like to get podcasts. And now, here's this week's message brought to you by Senior Pastor Adam Russell. Hey, good morning, everybody. Happy Palm Sunday. Do you like our palms? Yeah. It feels like a cat could jump out of these at any moment. Like, and not just a house cat, but like a really big one. <clears throat> hey, here's what I want to do this morning. I want to continue and finish up this little mini-series we're doing here at the Vineyard on Overcoming Offense. And today's sermon is called Overcoming Offense Part 2. That was as, that was as creative as I could get this week. I don't know. Sometimes I've got a really great title, and sometimes it's just like Part 2. And uh, so that's what it's going to be today. And I want to um, really talk a little bit about some of the stuff that Jeremy shared last week and then sort of build on that. But before I do that, what I want to do this morning is I would like to walk us through several scriptures here this morning. I don't think I've ever really done anything like this. I'm just going to power through about seven or eight scriptures this morning that give us some idea of how the Bible feels about like disunity and conflict and how much importance the Bible puts on things like harmony, Christian love, and unity. Is that okay? Yeah, not that you didn't know that, but I just want to say like this is a really big deal, and so we want to we want to draw straight from the source rather than just some decent ideas. And so what I want to do is just share several scriptures for you this morning. We'll start right here, Proverbs chapter fifteen says something like this, a hot-tempered person starts fights, a cool-tempered person stops them. Obvious, right? Yeah. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. By the way, that's like Old Testament ideology a little bit. But I say, love your enemies Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for you for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind to only your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. This was one of our little scriptures last week. Jesus says, If another brother sins against you, go privately, point out the offense. If the person listens and confesses it, well, you've won that person back. Romans chapter 12. Paul says, Never repay evil with more evil. That's a big one, huh? Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you're honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Matthew chapter 7. Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. Matthew chapter 5 verse 9. 
God blesses those who work for peace. They'll be called children of God. Look at this one. I, I particularly like this one, mostly because it's from one of those books you never want to read, you know? <laughs> Look at what God says in Leviticus. This is Leviticus God, okay? Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That one resonated with me so much this week. You know? Colossians chapter 3. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, what? Be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. I wanted to read those scriptures this morning because it's a great, really just a little survey of how the Bible puts such a high value on getting along. The Bible has a lot to say about conflict and disunity, especially within the household of God. And um, that's not just something that's in the New Testament, but it's even in the Old Testament. Like Leviticus God even says things like that, you know? And I I just love that. It touched my heart this week. Um, All over, there is this sense in the Old Testament and the New Testament and in lots of places in Paul's pastoral letters that deal with and address issues of conflict. It's kind of everywhere, and one of the reasons it's everywhere is there tends to be a lot of friction when people live in close relation to one another. Isn't that right? Think about your own family. (laughs) Like, family is highest of highs and lowest of lows. Why? Because there's much more connection, right? And so it's similar in the church, you know? It's it's why there's uh, laughter in our families and then the wounds that come from families are so deep, you have to go to therapy, you know? So any place that people share space really close and frequently, and any place where people become connected at the heart, well, then the drama and the potential for wounds goes up dramatically. It's kind of like my friend John Mark McMillan says. He says that conflict, he says that conflict is often the price of community. I think that's true. I actually don't think that's cynical. I think that's really, really true. Uh, So what I want to do is this. I I want to address conflict, and in order to do that, we have to get a few things straight up. One of the things that stands in the way of real harmony and real community are the false versions of community. And what do I mean by that? And uh, one of the false versions of community is uh, the idealized version of community. You know, what is the idealized version of community? Um, The community idea that says, well, real community is the place where no one is ever get hurt, ever gets hurt. Or real community is where no one ever has a crossword with one another. Or real community is where everyone is celebrated and seen and cared for all the time. Or real community is where everything is laughter and nothing is different or uncomfortable. 
And I say that because the ideal stands in the way of the real because in church and with friends and with family, when trouble comes and the trouble will come, it's kind of easy just to move on and find another one, right? Uh, This is one of the things that we've gotten really good at in church culture. We so idealize like a, a false version of community that anything that doesn't meet the false version or the ideal, uh, it wounds us all the more deeply. And then because there's a church on every corner, you can just leave and go find another one, right? That will temporarily meet the ideal until you've discovered that it's not, you know? And um, I think that one of the things we have to do if we're going to actually be a, a reconciling, healing community is we have to wake up to the fact that no community is ideal, not even this one, and, and making uh, an idol out of community will actually keep you from experiencing the real thing. Look at what Dietrich Bonhoeffer has to say in his killer book, Life Together. Uh, if you've never read Life Together, please do it. Like, put it on your schedule for this year. This is wonderful. Bonhoeffer says, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy the community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. Listen, I've lived this. I've experienced this. The ideal will kill the real. The ideal always, always kills the real. But if we can enter in and actually love the people around us, well, great things can come out of that. True community is what exists on the other side of disappointment and hurt and forgiveness. And I just want to say, that's not a pass for bad behavior, uh, but it is to say that real church, real family, and real community is not ideal. It's oftentimes rough around the edges. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to talk to you in two movements, okay? Two movements. And I want to talk to you in really big ways this morning. On the front end, I want to talk to you about how to begin to process your own offenses or your own pain. And then on the back end, I want to talk to you about how to process pain when you're the offender. Okay? And by the way, that's the part we never talk about, right? So I want to just maybe give us some tools this morning. So I kind of want to highlight some of what Jeremy said and then add to it. And then I want to give us another half of this message this morning that's really about what do you do when you're the problem? What do I do when I'm the problem? Which is real fun. So can I just ask for grace this morning? Will you give me a little grace? I need some grace. So I want to go through some thoughts that might help us here at the beginning, on the front end, process our own pain and offense. And I want to do this in the form of asking questions. In the form of asking questions, I have found that it is oftentimes very helpful if we could ask some questions uh, that might help us get a sense of where our pain is coming from and why it's happening. Questions for discerning pain and offense. So on the front end here, I'm talking about like if you're someone who's hurting, if you're someone who's in the middle of conflict, if you're someone who's offended, if you're having difficulties, I'm going to give you several questions that are really, really important before we go and talk with someone that we're offended with. And the first question that we have to ask ourselves is this. Is this a crime? Is this a sin? Or is this merely an offense? This is actually a really important question. Okay, When we're dealing with Christian brothers especially, or even people who are outside the church, question number one for discerning my pain is this. Is this a crime, a sin, 
or an offense. Now, why am I framing it like this? Well, number one, how many of you know that sometimes crimes actually happen between brothers and sisters in the church? In fact, uh, they're sometimes on the news, and it is terrible. The worst things that happen in church are when uh, abuse is perpetrated between people, you know, especially when it's happening from positions of power to people who are not powerful. That is the worst. So the first question is this. Is this a crime? Is this just an a sin or is this an offense? Now, how many of you know that if it's a crime, it's most likely a sin and it's probably offensive, right? But how many of you know that you could be offended and it not be a sin or a crime? How many of you know that your brother could offend you and it's literally not a sin and it's not an offense? It might just be like personality rumblings, right? That's why this is so important. Because if you assume that being offended means that someone has sinned against you or committed a crime against you, well, we're already, from the very beginning, we're off on the wrong foot. And by the way, the passage that we studied last week, and I just read a brief moment for you again uh, a moment ago, out of Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is talking not about necessarily dealing with offenses. He's talking about when a brother sins against you, right? That's very different. So question number one, Super important. Is this a crime? Is this a sin? Or is this an offense? Now, question number two. Is this the other person or is this my own pain? Like when something is going on, is it the other person or is it my own pain? Now, as these questions keep coming for the next few minutes, one of the things you're going to notice is I'm increasing our need for self-awareness, okay? Increasing our need for self-awareness. This is super important. You can live your whole life and be a relatively unself-aware person. And if you're relatively unself-aware, all you're going to do is actually increase the pain and conflict in your life. Becoming self-aware actually helps you to diffuse pain and conflict. So a really important question, like, especially if you're offended or maybe somebody sinned against you, you have to go, wait, wait, before I go and talk to them, I need to think, is this really that person or is this my own pain? Like, like do I have patterns of pain in my life that are showing up like this? And now is this really them? Maybe it is them or maybe it's my own pain. And that doesn't mean that if it is your own pain in some way that you shouldn't go talk to the other person, maybe you should, Right? But it means you need to know that I'm carrying some of my pain around or into situations. And so that colors the way that we begin to approach a brother who's hurt us. Does that make sense? Okay. Is this the other person or is it my own pain? Question number three. Is this situation real or is it my own historic insecurities? Again, just framing that second question in a new way. You know? Uh, How many of us, and don't show your hands... But how many of us have had um, recurring life issues or recurring pain or recurring offensive uh, moments that have happened in our lives uh, over and over again? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, so if we're going to go talk to a brother, or if we're going to deal with our pain, if we're going to talk to a sister, if we're going to begin to work it out, it's really important to know, is this just like a one-time thing or is this like history? And if it's history, then part of what it means is I'm actually a player in this. Somehow, I'm a player in this. Okay. Question number four. 
Have I placed unrealistic, have I placed, dang it. (laughs) Have I placed unrealistic or historic expectations on this person? Like if I'm hurt, if someone's hurt me, have I placed unrealistic or historic expectations on this person? Before I explain that, I'll let everybody in here have a chance to just go ahead and snap a picture of these questions. (laughs) You might need them. I need them. Right? This is good stuff. Have I placed historic expectations or unrealistic expectations on this person? What does that mean? Unrealistic. What is an unrealistic expectation on another person? Any expectation that can only be fully met by God. Am I expecting someone else to be God all the time, right? Am I? Historic. Is this moment really a historic echo? So, things will come up. Why? Because we're a church. Because we're a spiritual family. Because we share space with one another. Because you have unique history and I have unique history. You have a way of seeing the world and I have a a way of seeing the world. So does everyone else in this room. These are great questions to sort of internally process, become more self-aware about who we are, what our history is. And then when we go to talk to people, then we have a posture that's actually, I think, developed for reconciliation. Don't you think? I think this is really, really helpful. Yeah, really, really helpful in determining how we really just help one another through all of our issues. Okay, that's the first part. Just some ways of thinking about it. Now, I want to talk to you for a few minutes about what do we do if the problem is me? What do we do if the problem is me? Not if I have a problem, but what do we do if I'm not necessarily the one who's offended, but what, if we, what do we do if I'm the one who's offending? What do we do if I'm not the one who's been sinned against, but what do we do if I'm the person who's sinned against someone else? What do we do? What if it's, me. All right, I want to share with you four very practical things this morning. And the first thing I want to share with you is, sometimes it's me. Isn't this so practical? This is like, we're building from the ground this morning. The first thing I want to say about uh, being the person uh, who uh, offends or sins against someone, the first thing I want to say is, sometimes it's me. Sometimes it's me. Sometimes it's you, right? Sometimes it's us. And maybe we should just say that together this morning. Sometimes it's me. Why don't we say that together? Sometimes it's me. This could be a great mantra this week. Sometimes it's me, you know? When you pray to God this week, maybe you should say or even look in the mirror, sometimes it's me. We just have to acknowledge that. Sometimes it's going to be me. Sometimes it's going to be us. There's a chance that right now someone is really annoyed with you. Aren't these great thoughts? I'm going to take us into a little mine this morning. It's a little dark, but we're going to get there. But we got to go there, right? And the first mine I want to take you into is this little dark corner. Uh, Someone in Campbellsville is upset with you right now. Someone's annoyed with you. And you know what? It isn't them. It's you. It isn't them. It's me. You know? We live in a world 
We live in a world where sometimes it's going to be us. And if we live in a world where we're never wrong, where we're never the problem, where we're never the issue, that's a world we have made up. It's the same thing if it's never us. Let me just say this. I want to contrast this in two ways. If the problems are never us, that's the same thing as being the person who is always hurt, always offended, and always upset. Right? Always, right? If it's never me, it's most certainly me. Think about that. Married people. Think about, like, in the last three years, if it's never been you, it's you. I promise you, it's you. All right, let's go darker. We got to go into the, this mind shaft is very long and deep, okay? I want to take you into this next little room. Uh, If you come here long enough, it will eventually be you. Not only will it be someone else, you know, that's kind of a dark little room in this mine shaft. But if you come to the vineyard long enough, it will eventually be you. Everybody gets a turn. That's just, and why am I saying that? That's just like probability, you know? Like, if you're going to live a nice long life, if you're here for a decade, is it possible to be here for a decade and it not be you? If you do many things here, if you serve, and definitely if you lead, it will be you. It will be you. Uh, If you're a leader, if you're a leader, if you're someone who wants to be a leader, um, it will eventually be you. Why? Because you'll be coming into more contact at a closer uh, emotional space with people and oftentimes there are expectations that you didn't know about or you had on someone and next thing you know it's like you weren't even trying like you were actually trying to do good things and you'll hurt people and you were trying to do good things right you know that's just kind of like life sometimes it will be me what if it's me not if it's when it will be me and if you've ever 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 uh, been around someone um who it wasn't them, oh my gosh, it was probably them. Uh, The problem here is that eventually this kind of thing of being the emotional disruptor, being a person who offends or someone who sins against someone else, this is all going to happen. These kinds of problems, they're, they're viruses, you know? It's like, it's like how a virus spreads through a, a school or a church or a family, you know? And have you ever been around the person who said they didn't get sick or they bragged about not having the stomach virus? <laughs> you ever been, you know, everyone's been sick at school and then there's the one guy who's like, yeah, I don't get sick. <laughs> you know, the whole family gets blown up with a stomach virus, Right? Like there's just bodies all over the floor and there's towels covering things up in the hallway. And then there's the one guy who's like, yeah, I, don't, I didn't get it. What's the next, like cut, right? You cut the scene and then the next day, what is it? They got it. Why? Because everybody gets a turn. Everybody gets a turn. Like being the offender is like getting the stomach virus. You might not get it often. You're going to get it eventually. You're go- it'll sometimes be you. You're going to get a head cold. 
All right, number one, sometimes it's me. Uh, Number two, opportunities to grow in self-awareness. Opportunities to grow in self-awareness. A conflict is a chance to grow in self-awareness. It's really hard to think about how we affect others. It's really hard. It's really hard to know um, how we come off. It's hard to know who we are and and how we are with other people. Um, Sometimes we just assume that everyone thinks what we think. And sometimes we assume that everyone uh, in the world has basically had the same life experience that we had, you know? Um, I, I grew up here in Kentucky. In fact, I grew up here in Campbellsville. I've lived here essentially my entire life. And uh, this is sort of a silly example, but, you know, I am deeply Campbellsvillian, you know, whatever this is. And I grew up on a little farm uh, with a very permissive mother and father. And I think some of it was like where I'm from and then just sort of the the natural makeup of my family. And some of it is just like being from the South or, you know, there's a lot of things that are sort of in these waters. And so when I was 12, I mean, I remember, I remember when I was 12, my dad gave me a 22 rifle and two bricks of shells and was like, and this was like at the beginning of summer break, and was like, uh, don't kill yourself, <laughs> right? And I, I ran around in the woods when I was 12. It was just, and I had a buddy, and I had this friend named Shane, and we would go fishing in the pond way, way down the creek from where I lived, and we always had rifles with us. They were always loaded, always loaded, right? We shot things. We, you know, we never got hurt, right? And I, I didn't think anything of it. I was just like, that's what I did. I had guns. And I, there, that gun was in my bedroom all the time. And it was always loaded, you know? And I'm not saying that's good. I'm, not, I'm, I'm just saying that's how it is. And one time, one time, I told this story to some folks from the northern coastal urban cities that sort of exist up there, and they were mortified, right? They were mortified. Listen, obviously there's nothing wrong necessarily in this case uh, with my life experience. Some of you would say there's something wrong with my life experience. That's fine. I'm saying there's nothing sinful. It might be offensive, but there's nothing sinful. I'll put it that way, right? Uh, there's no, and I would even say there's nothing wrong. But there's nothing wrong with my life experience per se. But it's a silly example of somehow we sometimes assume that everybody else thinks what we think and basically uh, grew up like we did. And so you can just be who you are and all of a sudden you've deeply offended or mortified 12 or 15 people at a dinner party. <laughs> what am I trying to say? Sometimes it's you. And when it's you, it's a really great chance to grow in self-awareness because no one thinks what you think, no one thinks what I think, and no one has grown up the way we grew up. No one. Not even your sister or your brother grew up like you. You know? Uh, I've talked to my sister at length. We had very similar growing up experiences, and we have really distinct memories and emotional resonances with what it meant to grow up in our own houses that overlap in a lot of ways and then are really different in a lot of ways. Does that make sense? Yeah. A chance to grow in self-knowledge. Growing in self-awareness is even better before a conflict. 
<laughs> Let conflict show you, like one of the gifts of conflict is that it can show you who you are, right? But this is even better. If we could learn who we are and know who we are. If we can know who we are before the conflict, that is way Way better. And you know what? It might even prevent a conflict. If you know who you really are, it could prevent a conflict. Um, I know lots of people here have looked into the Enneagram. Isn't that right? Y'all just love talking about it. Christians just love that junk. They just... Yeah. I'll tell you a funny little story. <clears throat> I'll tell you a funny little story. I turned 40 last May. And Heather's like, what do you want to do? I'm like, I want to get a few friends together. I want to drink some wine and eat some decent food. And so she invited some people. And I'm like, oh, yeah, one more thing. I'm like, number one, I don't want to talk about politics. Number two, I don't want to talk about the Enneagram. And number three, I don't want to talk about work, you know? It was great. And everybody accepted that little parameter, and it was awesome, you know? Okay, I want to talk to you about the Enneagram for a second, okay? Uh, okay. So here's the thing. The Enneagram is pretty helpful. It's not everything. I think it's pretty flawed in some ways. I mean, it's not actual science, but here's what it is. It can help you know who you are in a weird way. It can broad brush some categories. And for those of you who don't know, the Enneagram is like a, it's like a personality sort of test. And there's a lot of them. They're all helpful and not helpful to a certain extent. But I will say this. It creates broad categories that people can sort of like understand themselves inside of. And I think the real gift of the Enneagram is not telling you necessarily what your strengths are, but the real gift of the Enneagram is it provides a non-emotional space to wake up to your shadow, to know who your shadow side is, right? Again, self-awareness, awareness. And... Um, one of the things that I've learned about myself is that I'm an Enneagram type 8. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, the Enneagram type 8 is like the challenger. Uh, Enneagram type 8s can thrive in conflict. I'll put it this way. Some people are very frightened by conflict. I'm not. Like, if we just need to have a conversation, let's just have it, you know? Like, you're not going to scare me. I might scare you, but you're not going to scare me, right? <laughs> but here's what I've learned about my shadow. Okay, now here's the deal. I'll just tell you. There's some good stuff about Enneagram 8s, because if you want to get crap done, you're going to need one of us in your life, right? Because uh, when things get difficult, we don't lose energy. A lot of other people lose energy when things get a little hard. Enneagram 8s don't lose energy. We keep going, you know? We can get there. Uh, but we have a shadow side. And part of the shadow of an Enneagram 8 is that not only can we manage conflict fairly well sometimes, but sometimes we enjoy it, you know? And part of my shadow, part of the shadow that I particularly carry, is that I have a certain kind of energy, Everybody here's like, well, really? Yeah. <laughs> but this is fairly true of Enneagram 8s in general. Enneagram 8s have a certain kind of energy, and they carry it with them everywhere. Now, uh, everyone has a certain kind of energy, and everyone carries that with them everywhere. And no, I'm not talking about woo-woo energy. I'm just talking about, you know, interpersonal, <laughs> relational energy. I'm not talking about auras, you know? 
I don't think I am. Maybe I am. I don't know. Anyway, but, but I have a certain energy that I carry into the room. Uh, for 39 years, I was basically unaware of the. I mean, I knew it, but I didn't know it, right? And so I was, I was low on self-knowledge about the kind of energy that I carried into all rooms all the time, right? And so probably over the last 40 years, the most consistent thing that new people have said to me is some version of this, you scare me. <laughs> or you're intimidating. Now, what's, what sucks about this is I'm not trying to be intimidating, and I don't even feel scary. I even have like warm, fuzzy feelings about like this room and this gathering and everything. But you might be picking up on, you might be picking up on intimidation or scary. Right? Now, listen, that doesn't mean that's exactly what's going on, but if that's what you're picking up on, I need to have that self-knowledge because that's what I'm carrying here. And if I want to care for and pastor people, I've got to somehow uh, not only know this about myself, but, but begin to like, have workarounds. Right? Workarounds. Because I don't want to intimidate people. Uh, that sucks, but it's really good to know. So here's some things I'm working on, right? Here's some things I'm working on. Um, smiling more. I'll tell you how deep this goes. This is how deep this goes. Um, when I come to church and I'm getting out of the car, walking across the parking lot, I think to myself, I have a little mantra because I've been doing this for a few years. And I'm not saying that I'm good at it yet either. I just have a little mantra that says, uh, smile more, engage more for today in this space. Why? Because I know I'm an Enneagram 8. I'm bringing a certain kind of energy into this room, and I know I need to work around. And part of the workaround is, hey, why not smile a little more? Um, I also am working on this. I'm working on engaging more because I'm not just an Enneagram 8, but I'm actually an introvert. And some of y'all get energy from this moment that we're having, and some of us lose it. <laughs> like right now, I'm just leaking energy. <laughs> you know? Uh, and I'm actually perfectly happy. I'll just tell you how I am. I'm perfectly happy to come here and talk to four or five really good friends for 20 minutes and no one else, right? But that's actually not helpful for this moment. It's actually not healthy, and it's actually not good for this moment. Why? Because there's going to be 400, 425 people here this morning, and it would be better for me to smile and rather than talk to three or four, to, to maybe contact 50 or 60 or 100. And so I try to, I know this is really weird and self-disclosing, but I'll just tell you how to work this out, right? I try to engage 80 or 100 people a Sunday. Why? Because I know that if I just let myself be who I am, I won't, right? I've woken up. I've gotten some self-knowledge. Okay, what else am I doing? I'm, I'm working on laughing more. Working on laughing more. Why? Because I'm given to seriousness, and I read the Bible a couple of times, and serious is not a fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> what am I talking about? Self-awareness. Conflict is a... Conflict sucks, but it, one of the gifts of conflict is 
if you could be a little reflective, you could grow in self-awareness. And if you grow in self-awareness, it might actually keep conflicts from happening. So when it's you, when it's you, when you're the offensive, sinful, hurting person, it's really an opportunity to like re-engage life and learn something deep about yourself. Okay, number three. These next two will go a lot quicker. They're less funny. Um, number three, learn to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. <laughs> what is this? What is this? I'm sorry, please forgive me. Five words. Why don't we say that together this morning? I'm sorry, please forgive me. You ready? I'm sorry, please forgive me. Oh, most of us don't grow up with a lot of muscle memory around those words. In fact, I'll just tell you, uh, no one grows up with muscle memory around those words. Those five words are actually words you have to learn. You have to learn to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I'm sorry, please forgive me is a little bit like working out. It's really hard at first, and it can, it can actually make you sore. It can make you sore on the inside. But the more we do that, the more we own our stuff in really non-defensive ways, I can tell you this as well. It actually gets a lot easier. You know, The first time you admit that you were in the wrong, the first time you say, I'm sorry, please forgive me to someone from your heart, uh, especially uh, if it's someone who's sort of outside of your immediate family circle or something, the first time you do that, it'll be really hard. It'll be really hard. It might even make you emotionally sore for a month, you know? Uh, but if you keep doing it, you'll build strength and you'll get muscle memory. And pretty soon you'll realize it's actually not that hard. You can grow in it. After 20 years of marriage, I'm starting to learn. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Uh, but let me drop this other little note in here about apologizing. Uh, before we get to apologizing, it's really good to have the courage to dig down to what you're actually apologizing for. This is called mining for pain or mining for conflict. Like once, once you're in it, okay, so let's say that someone has come to you and said, you know what, you've, you've really hurt me or you sinned against me or I'm, I'm in pain because of something that's happened between us. Once we're there, can we just acknowledge that sucks, right? Okay, so once we're in a sucky place, if you're the person, if you can, and I, I just want to say, come on, let's do this. Like, if you can, then be the person who goes the next level deeper and does something called mining for conflict or mining for pain. And it might even take, take these kinds of skills. Someone comes to you and says, you know what, you've really hurt me. Uh, you've sinned against me or you've put me in pain. Uh, it might be good to, uh, the first thing you do is just shut up and listen, right? Like, just re get really quiet and listen. And then you might even have to go, hey, can we just, can we just sit here awkwardly for a second in silence? right? Because it, it's good to get your, that, that first emotional wave to let it go down, right? Because the, the first emotional wave will never serve you. That's like your, that's like, those are, it's, it, it's like your monkey person. It's just your, it's your unevolved little lizard guy, and it's not going to help you, you know? It's the, it's the least good version of yourself. So you let that you let that emotional thing go down, and it might even take a second. It might even be awkward, you know? Like if it was... You let it go down, right? And then, and you know, you're both sitting there, 
And then if you're really brave, and I think this is really good, you could go, okay, I think I understand what you're saying. Is this why you're upset? Like, try to like get down to like, what exactly is it? Because sometimes someone could come to you and be like, you've upset me or you've hurt me or you've sinned against me. And it might be fairly clear or because they're really emotional, they might be saying a lot of stuff and, and you might not be down to what it really is. There might be this dust cloud over it. Anybody ever had those moments where it's like, there's a lot of stuff in the air and I don't know what it is yet, right? So you let it go down and then you go, is this, is this like this it? And they're like, N- well, kind of a no. I was more upset with this. And then you're like, okay, this. And do you know what I'm saying? And then once you get down to what it really is, then you say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I'm sorry. Why? Because if we don't get down to the thing, if we don't get down to what it really is, we're just increasing the chances that it can happen again. Uh, We're limiting our uh, self-knowledge. We're limiting our ability to learn anything about ourselves there. And and also I know this, um, and because it's possible to use an apology just to move on. You can actually weaponize apologies. You know, somebody can come to you and be like, well, you've been really offensive. And you can be like, well, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Can we just move on? And then you really haven't dealt with like whatever's there. Does that make sense? So some people learn real quickly that an apology can be a shortcut. And it would be better to take the long cut. Yeah. Okay, number four. Occasionally being wrong is not the end of the world. Occasionally being wrong is not the end of the world. Occasionally being wrong uh, is not a death sentence to your life. It's not a ministry killer. Occasionally being wrong is not a disqualifier for who you are, what you do, and what you're about. Occasionally being wrong is not the end of the world. Uh, I'll just tell you this. Shame is a terrible, terrible thing. And a little of it can be like a stick through the spokes of a bike. You know, you're riding a bike and like a little bit of shame can be like a stick right through the front wheel. It'll just send you going, you know? Like, and it doesn't even have to be a big stick to send you over the handlebars. Like a disproportionately small stick can ruin your day. You know? And, and if you go over the handlebars on a bike... Uh, probably you're going to like really hurt yourself and it won't be just a bad moment, but it's this bad moment that leads to a really painful week or month. can throw us over handlebars, but it doesn't have to be the case. Why? Here's why. Because Jesus has already forgiven everybody for everything. Before you ever did it, Jesus hung on the cross and forgave the world. He died and called the very worst offenders his own. He called the people who had sold him out his friends. Paul says that we are co-heirs with Christ. And that's all of Jesus' people. All of Jesus' people are co-heirs with him. Meaning that we're going to inherit everything that Jesus inherits. We are inheriting everything that Jesus has. Everything that is the Father's has become the Son's that has become the whole world for anybody who would accept it. And so shame doesn't have to end your life. Occasionally being wrong is not the end of the world. And that's not just something that's going to be true later. It's actually true 
now. If you've screwed something up, own it, apologize, ask for forgiveness, make things right. And if you can, keep moving on knowing that Jesus is not going to kick you off the team. Jesus is not kicking you off the team. Peter and the disciples left Jesus for dead in his time of need, and none of them were kicked off the team. None of them were kicked off the team. Mature people are not always right. I just want you to know this. Mature people are not always right, but they are people who can deal with being wrong in a right way. And that's what we're talking about. You know, mature people, not always right, but mature people can deal with being wrong in the right kind of way. You know, they don't spread it. They don't make it bigger. It's not the end of the world. All right, so what do I want to do this morning? If you're on the ministry team, come on up. And everybody else can stand up. And we're just going to pray. Thanks again for stopping by the podcast of The Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening at The Vineyard, you can follow us on social media. Until next time.